Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, speaking of the Lord's faithfulness, the Mission Church has been in a uh, has been enjoying a prolonged period of time in which almost every single Sunday we see first-time guests attending our worship gathering. And I praise God for that. And uh, I praise God and I trust and I hope that every person who comes here experiences a welcoming, friendly, worshipful, Bible-based, Christ-centered, gospel-focused ministry that is eager to do all that we can to help people know, to follow, and to grow in Christ. So if you are a first-time guest today, I celebrate you. I thank you for being here. If you're a returning guest, we're honored that you're back as well, and we're excited today to share the love of Christ with you. I mentioned that we are a Bible-based ministry, and that means that we believe that the Bible is God's Word. And because it is God's Word, we, we make it a habit to, um, to go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, with the desire to understand its communication and to discover how God would have us apply its truths in our lives. Now, currently, we are focused on the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, more accurately titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ, because that is ultimately what the book is about. It is about revealing the Son of God who first came to earth 2,000 years ago as the humble, suffering servant of salvation and is promising to come again, which is still future, as the risen, glorified, conquering king to establish his never-ending kingdom. We're excited about that. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, the physical author of Revelation is the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' original disciples. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, reveals that uh, John was instructed by Christ to write about three things, and these three things serve as the basic overall outline of the book. He was told to write about the things he had seen, And he did that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And he was told to write about the things that are, and he did that. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, uh, we find Jesus' evaluation and instruction to seven churches that were in existence at that time in Asia Minor. And so he recorded the things that were at that time. And then he was instructed to write about the things that are yet to come. And that encompasses Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end, chapter 22. Now, we are currently in chapter 6, which is focused on things yet to come. And we're unpacking the seven-sealed scroll that Jesus took from the hand of God the Father, which is recorded in chapter 5. Now, as we're here in chapter 6, we're presently looking at uh, verses 1 through 8. And uh, these verses reveal what has become known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? There was a wrestling crew that took that name, the four horsemen, but that's not who we're talking about. You thought that was funny, did you, Julie? Okay. 
Now, as we look at these, what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I, I just want to say it again, that uh, these horses that are being spoken of and these riders that are being spoken of are not literal, okay? In other words, when Jesus breaks open a seal, it's not a real blood-pumping, uh, oxygen-breathing, uh, hoof-beating horse that comes out. Now, John saw a horse. He saw the symbol of that he saw the representation of that and he saw a, a rider on that but 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 the horse and rider themselves are not literal but the one thing i've been trying to make sure that we grasp is that throughout the book of revelation even though there is much symbolism that symbolism that figurative language is there to communicate what is literal and i think we are foolish to take the book any other way than literal. Now, it takes a little work sometimes to work through the, the symbolism, but ultimately the symbolism is there to represent that which is literal. Verses 1 and 2 of Revelation chapter 6 record Jesus opening the first seal of the scroll, which unleashed a white horse and rider with an arrowless bow and a crown that had been given to him. Now, we've come to understand that uh, this as the removal of the divine restraints that have uh, held the one who is known as the Antichrist in obscurity, uh, enabling him, when it happens, to begin his ascension to world domination. And we talked about how he would begin that ascent to power. He would do it through the promise of peace and safety, and he would use his charisma and diplomacy. But then we moved on to verses 3 and 4, which record the opening of the second seal of the scroll, which unleashed a red horse and rider who were given power to take peace away from the earth. So whatever goodwill, whatever peace that this figure, the Antichrist, is able to build in the beginning, it's going to all crumble before his eyes. And as peace is taken away from the earth, there's going to be an unleashing of an ever-increasing level of violence and bloodshed that eclipses all other times in human history. As we looked into the Old Testament, we saw how that this Antichrist figure, at this point in history, his coalition of nations will begin to break down and that will lead him then to uh, turn to violence in an attempt to protect and to preserve his global rule and that brings us then to verses 5 and 6 which is our focus today let's read those two verses when he, that is, Jesus, opened the third seal I heard a living creature say, come and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Father, I pray now as we go through this, that your spirit will empower uh, the communication of your word and help each one of us to receive today what we desperately need, whether we are followers of you, Lord Jesus, uh, and, and we need to take a step uh, of faith, a step of, of transformation, or whether we're here today and we are not yet followers of Jesus and we need to become followers of Jesus. I pray that the Holy Spirit will work upon each one individually 
and empower us to do what you would have us do this day. And we'll give you the praise and glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, another thing I want us to bear in mind, I feel like I need to keep reminding us of certain things because we kind of lose sight of it if I don't. Uh, as we unpack verses 5 and 6, just like the other two uh, passages we've looked at, I want you to bear in mind that with the opening of each of these seals, that what they contain when they are unleashed does not come to pass immediately. Okay? It is the unleashing of those things, and they begin at a certain point, and they grow over a period of time to their ultimate end. Now, what we find being unleashed through the third seal is the beginning of a global famine or a shortage of food resources on a scale that heretofore has never been known. Now, there have been numerous famines throughout history, and the Bible certainly does not record all of them, but it does record some of them. And perhaps one of the most recognized famines that the Bible speaks of is the one that took place in Egypt, and, it be, and we see that, that that account begins in Genesis 41 in just brief form. God gave the reigning Pharaoh of the time a dream. A dream about seven attractive, plump cows. Try to imagine that. Seven attractive, plump cows. But he also saw in his dream seven ugly, thin cows. And those seven ugly, thin cows consumed the seven plump, attractive, plump cows. So, desperate to understand what in the world that meant, he called for the Israelite Joseph, who had shown himself capable of interpreting dreams, of course, capable because the Lord God is with him and giving him those interpretations. He called for him, and God then did give him the interpretation of that dream. And here it is. The interpretation was that the seven attractive plump cows represented seven years of abundant harvest that was coming for Egypt. That's a very positive uh, picture. But the seven ugly thin cows that consumed the seven attractive plump cows represented a famine that would come following those seven years of abundance that would be so severe that it would erase the seven years of abundant harvests and would put Egypt in a desperate situation where they would face starvation as a nation. And that was God's message to the Pharaoh. Now, fortunately for him and fortunately for Egypt, God gave Joseph wisdom to advise the Pharaoh about a plan that would allow Egypt to escape the devastation of starvation. And the Pharaoh put Joseph then in charge of the entire plan. And if you've read the story, you know that ultimately all things ended well for Egypt at that time and also for the Israelites at that particular time. I think that we all like happy endings to stories. But such is not going to be the case for the famine that is coming with the unleashing of the black horse and rider. In this case, 
God does not give a plan to enable humanities to successfully survive this famine. In fact, the very judgments that God sends that causes the famine are meant to create mass suffering and death among those left on the earth during the tribulation period. Now before I unpack verses 5 and 6 specifically, in preparation for that, I want to take you back to the second seal, verses 3 and 4. And then after I talk briefly about that, I want to jump forward to Revelation chapter 8, to what are called the seven trumpet judgments. And we're going to go there to discover the divine actions that cause and exacerbate the famine. So let's begin then by considering the divine actions that will generate the tribulation famine. Action number one is global conflict. The second seal that Jesus opened from the scroll unleashed the red horse and rider whom he gave the power to take peace away from the earth. And of course, taking peace away from the earth results in ever-increasing global violence. Now, among the, the many casualties of war, and there are many different kinds of casualties that come during war. Among them is agriculture. Agriculture is a, a casualty of war. You think about it. Tanks, bombs, troops, and killing on a massive scale are simply not effective for agriculture, simply not conducive for effective agriculture. Now as we think back over the history of mankind and the many, many, many wars that have taken place to include World War I and World War II, so far all of our wars have been isolated to a specific spot on the earth, which pretty much leaves the rest of the earth capable of producing food. But when war goes global, it's going to be all hands on deck, including farmers, including ranchers. And the sheer scope of the conflict will interrupt not only the production of food, but the transportation of food, the storage of food, and the sales of the food that has been produced. So that's action number one, the global conflict that we see beginning with the unleashing of the second seal. Action number two, then, I've titled Supernatural Divine Judgment. Supernatural Divine Judgment. We go to Revelation chapter 8, which introduces to us the second wave of divine judgments called the trumpet judgments. Four of the seven trumpet judgments are going to have a direct impact on the world's ability to produce food. I'm not going to go in depth with these because chapter 8 is just around the corner 
And when we get there, we'll talk more in depth about them. But I do feel that introducing these to you and just giving you a quick consideration of them is helpful as we consider the opening of the third seal and what it's all about. So in chapter 8, verse 7, we're introduced to trumpet number 1, which says that one-third of the earth's trees and one-third of the earth's green grass will be burned up. Now, trees, when you think about it, certainly, you know, oaks, maples, all that kind of thing, pines, but would also include fruit-bearing, food-bearing trees, like apples and oranges, bananas, mm, and pineapple, pineapples, and pineapples grow on trees, don't they? Okay. What do they grow on then? Pineapples grow on the ground? Well, there goes me. I shoo. Okay, forget the pineapples. Let's go with coconuts. I've seen them climb the trees to get those. All right. The point simply is this. Is that when you, if, 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 if we're to take that literally, then you have to understand that among the devastation is going to be the trees that grow food and if we are to understand that one-third of the green grass is going to be burned up we need to also understand that the general crops that grow on the ground like pineapple (laughs) I knew I could fix that if I just waited long enough are going to be impacted as well this stuff is so heavy you got to have some some moments of levity I'm telling you We move on to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8. We are introduced to to trumpet number 2, which tells us that when when that comes, one-third of the earth's seas will be disturbed and polluted to the point that one-third of the sea creatures die and one-third of the ships are destroyed. Now, I think I'm pretty safe in this. Tuna, crab, shrimp, lobster... Those all come from the seas and oceans, right? Not only will those foodstuffs be diminished, but we're told that the vessels that go out to catch them and and the vessels that transport across the seas all manner of goods from one continent to another will be diminished. Chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 introduce us to trumpet number three that speaks of one-third of the fresh water sources becoming toxic. And not only will this impact all of the freshwater foodstuffs that we depend upon, but much of the water itself will become unusable for drinking or for irrigation, which just simply further exacerbates the productivity of crops. And then finally, verse 12, we're introduced to trumpet number four that says that one-third of the light from the sun, from the moon, and stars will be diminished so that the cycle of light and darkness that regulates agriculture is impacted. Now, you take all of these supernatural, divinely orchestrated judgments together And what you have 
is the perfect storm that disrupts every food-producing industry and those industries that store it, that transport it, that sell it. And you have then on your hands the greatest global shortage of food that has ever been, which then brings rise to all forms of austere measures to try to cope with that situation. Now, I think all of that leads us to a very important question, and that is, why does God use divine power to produce an event like this or events like this that brings such human suffering and devastation? Because he's the one doing it. It's not the devil doing it. It's not the Antichrist who's doing it. It's not even the corrupt governments of the world who are doing it. This is God in action. Why? Well, truth point number one explains it. In his great wrath and hatred for sin, God has ordained a time of fierce judgment on a world that has rejected his right to lovingly rule over them and also the grace that would empower them to submit to that rule. That's the bottom line. Great wrath. And that great wrath, I think, is, is even increased by the next part. In his great mercy and grace, God has given humanity ample time and revelation of what is to come so that we can turn from sin and embrace his loving rule through the Lord Jesus Christ. God's rule is a loving rule. It is. You think about his patience. You think about his provision. You think about, I don't know, just everything that he does on a daily basis and over time that protects and helps and heals and strengthens. Yes, bad things happen. Sicknesses come. People die. But that's not God doing it. That's, that's the result of sin. And God is working in that, that situation. It's a loving rule. And yet, the world as a whole chooses to reject that saying, no, I won't have you rule over me. I will rule over myself. I will be the determiner of my destiny. And so, for a world that says, no, thank you, God has a time of fierce judgment that's coming. And that fierce judgment only gets heated hotter because he's given so much time and he's given so much revelation. And he even sent his own son to die for us, which is the ultimate expression of God's loving rule. Apostle Paul wrote in Romans eleven twenty two. 22, he wrote, Note then 
the kindness and severity of God. The truth of Yahweh is he is both severe and kind. He is kind to those who embrace him. And he is severe in his judgments to those who reject him. And I ask all of you, and those of you online, and those of you in the overflow room, which, which side of the fence are you on today? Presently, are you embracing him by faith, or are you stiff-arming him to say, no, thank you, I'll live life on my own terms? When we come to verse 5, then, of Revelation chapter 6, the third seal unleashes a black horse and rider who has a set of scales in his hand. Now, scales can represent the weighing out of justice. We all are kind of familiar with that symbolism. But they often also represent the weighing out of commodities. And I think that the the context of verse 5 and 6 demands that we see these scales as those who weigh out or ration food. How many of you, uh, by a raised hand, would say, "I, I grew up during the Great Depression and or World War II? There's not going to be many hands because that was a way back. Um, so for those of you who lived through the Great Depression and World War II, you know that it was, especially World War II, it was a time when the government put the country under a system of rationing. Look at these pictures on the screen. Rationing safeguards your share. You couldn't just go to the store and buy all of the oil and all of the wine and all of the uh, sugar and all of the flour that you wanted. No, no, no. You received coupon books that dictated how much you could get in a specific amount of time. Show the next picture. That was a cartoon. This is a real picture. You could get a half a pound a week per person of sugar or half half of uh, the usual purchase of tea and three-fourths of coffee of the usual purchase. Usual? Usual purchase. Yeah. It was a time we even saw that in our own country. It was a time, as I say, where the government took control and dictated to the populace what they could have and what they couldn't have, and there were good reasons for it. I'm not trying to criticize that. The world was at war and in conflict But the bottom line is, is that during that time of scarcity, there were government programs, there were charitable organizations, there were coupon books that allowed you to go and get the things, at least in part, that you needed. But when the third seal is opened, I don't think there's going to be any coupon books in play. In fact, as I look at this passage, what I see is astronomical inflation that is going to impact the population and their ability to obtain food to sustain life. And if we look at verse 6, it seems to point out that God himself is the one whose declaration sets in motion this governing scenario. Look with me at verse 6. 
John said, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Now, this is a reference literally back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, and the scene that, that John saw there in heaven. He described for us there these four living creatures, these cherubim, these angels, who were stationed at the front, the back, the left, and the right of the throne of God. If we understand that correctly then, that would put the throne of God and the one who sits on the throne of God in the midst or in the middle of the four living creatures. And that leads me then to believe that the voice that John is hearing is the voice of God himself. And what he is doing is decreeing the severity of the famine's impact. Notice, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now the word quart there is uh, the English translation of the Greek word hoinix, which represents one day's food ration for one person. One day's food ration for one person. So in this context, it is representing the amount of wheat or the amount of barley that can be purchased with a denarius. Well, what is a denarius? A denarius represents a day's wage for a common laborer. In that time, in the time of John's life, a common laborer received for his day's work a denarius. It was a silver coin, and that was enough to support him for that day. They say that denarius today would be worth about 16 cents. That doesn't get you nowhere. But I think about the, the, the concept of a day's wage. So here in America, what does a common laborer make in a day? I don't know. But let's just say, since McDonald's is now paying $15 an hour, let's just assume then that maybe a common laborer makes $20 an hour. Well, you take $20, you multiply that by an eight-hour day, and you get what? Tell me, those mathematicians? 160. I had to make sure I was right. I didn't want to, I could correct that if I was wrong. $160. So I want you to imagine, if you can, imagine that you work all day, and you take all that you make in that day to purchase just enough bare essential food to sustain yourself for one day. It literally takes all that you earn to eat for one day. Now think about that. Is food the only expense that we have? What about your rent? What about your car payment? Right? What about your utility bills? If you have to spend all that you make in a day to get just enough for yourself to sustain your life, you don't have anything left to take care of those other necessities. And you start really getting yourself in some serious trouble that only exacerbates the problem even more. More importantly than all those other things, what about your spouse and children if you have them? Now, in verse 6, we find that if one is willing to move down the food chain to barley, 
which is a, uh, a coarse grain that is typically used for animal feed, then you can get three quarts of that for a day's labor for your family. But what about those who are too old to work? What about those who are too weak to work? What about those who are too handicapped to work? What about those who are injured from the increasing violence and supernatural judgments to work? I think the picture is well painted, is it not? That this is a humanitarian disaster that makes all others pale by comparison. And when this need arises, when this event actually begins to transpire... There's not going to be any rescue from another land. There's not going to be any charitable group that possesses an abundance that's going to run in and help you. In fact, the greatest charitable group that exists, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't even going to be here. By the way, you ought to read, I'm trying to think, remember his name. Uh, he was the pastor in Florida. Uh, Kennedy, Kennedy. Uh, D. James Kennedy. He wrote a book years ago about how the church literally over time is the one that's responsible for hospitals and, 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 and schools and universities and such and such and such. The church has been in the foreground of helping the world who is at lack over the millennia. But there won't be any church, at least no real church. There'll be a false church. There's not going to be anybody who's going to come in and help. And the reason is because the whole world is going to be laboring under this judgment. That leads me to truth point number two. As sad as all this is, the point is made time and again in the Scriptures that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It is the soul. Physical death and spiritual death are the sole destiny of a life that is lived outside of the loving rule of Christ Jesus. Quite frankly, with the exception of those during the tribulation period who are spiritually saved, and there will be many who are, it's going to be those who reject Christ and choose to live outside of his loving rule that will be the direct target of these judgments. Others will be impacted by the overflow of them. Now, before I close this, what I'm considering to be a very sad message, um, but it's, I got to deal with it. It's just what's there. We need to consider the final words of verse 6. The final words of verse 6, the voice who I believe is the voice of God says, do not harm the oil and the wine. <laughs> do not harm the oil and the wine. What is that all about? Well, I can tell you that there are probably 12 different speculations of what that means, and I'm not going to waste your time or my breath trying to tell you all those 12 speculations. I do not, I do not say that I have reached the absolute truth on this. I, I, I wouldn't say that. But I do have a thought that I believe will carry some weight. You can be the judge. What is it all about? We have the, the famine on one hand and the order, don't harm the oil and the wine. Truth point number three. 
despite the severity of God's judgment through a famine of basic food necessities. He is nonetheless showing mercy in his order that the oil and wine not be harmed. I think it's simply a, 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 an, an act of mercy. You see, God is justified and he is able to destroy all that humanity relies upon to survive. But what we find, I believe, is him tempering his judgment to allow some items to be set aside from the devastation of the judgment that he is going to send upon the earth. And when I think about that, it puts me in mind of Romans 6.23. I want you to look at Romans 6.23 with me. Just follow this line of thought. Romans 6.23 begins with this phrase, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, according to Romans 3.23, we have all sinned. We have all committed sin. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, if the wages of sin is death and we've all sinned, then the result should be physical and spiritual death for every man, woman, boy, and girl without exception because we've all sinned. Severe, wouldn't you say? Yet in the midst of of that severity. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God chose to temper his judgment upon sinful humanity by providing a way for sin's debt to be paid, allowing even the grossest of sinners to find forgiveness of sin and right standing with God. So Romans 6.23 starts with severity. For the wages of sin is death. But then it shows us God's kindness and his kindness is put on display. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have the severity of God. We have the kindness of God. Now, this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ is not a gift that is automatically just doled out to all the sinners. But praise God, it is a gift that can be received by any sinner, no matter how sinful they are. Romans chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and 13 say this, and they say this for anyone, for anyone. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone can do that. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone, everyone, say it, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the kindness of God in the midst of the severity of God over sin. And so, friends, I have to ask you, I have to ask you, those of you in the room, those who are online, those who are in the overflow room, have you called upon the Lord for his saving grace? Today is your opportunity 
to do that. God has provided for you today an opportunity to hear about both his severity toward sin and his kindness toward repentant sinners to give you an opportunity to turn from sin's severe consequences to God's kindness and salvation. And I ask, do you have questions about the gospel? Do you have questions about what it means or what it looks like to become a a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? My contact information is on the screen. If you'll reach out, I'll reach back. And I believe the Lord will meet you where your need is. And I urge you to turn today to his kindness. But I speak lastly then to my fellow believers. I say it almost every week. You have been blessed by God's kindness in the saving of your soul. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? Do you realize you do not have the right to redemption? The redemption you have, brothers and sisters in Christ, is the kindness of God upon you. He has been kind to bring you and me into his family, into his kingdom, and we need to truly thank him and praise him every day for that kindness because we don't deserve it. But I need to ask, are you equipped to share the good news with others? I remind you again, it is God's will for your life to do that and sharing the good news with others in no small way is why he saved you let me show you this scripture I know you were putting your stuff away you thought we were getting ready to go but we're not second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 17 through 20 therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's one step. He reconciled us to himself. He brought us to himself and made the relationship right. And in doing so, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he saved us, praise God, and he gave us a ministry. Do you see that, church? Verse 19 goes on to say, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us. To who? To those whom he has reconciled to himself, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Christian, Christian, you have been reconciled to God by Christ Jesus so that you can become an ambassador of reconciliation. An ambassador to a world that needs the grace that only Christ can give. 
And so I ask all of you in here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you equipped to do that? Perhaps you sit there, as you've sat there many other times and thought, I just don't feel comfortable with it. I just don't feel like I can do I don't know what I would say. I don't even know how I would get in, into a conversation about such a thing. Well, my friend, the reason you feel that way is because you've never submitted yourself to be equipped. Because if you had, you would at least know what to do. And so I urge you then, submit yourself to be equipped. We're about teaching people all the time how to, how to be an ambassador of the gospel to a world that needs the gospel. And I speak to those of you who are equipped. You're sitting there right now thinking, yes, I know what to do, but you're presently not living as an ambassador. I say to you, repent. Repent. Begin representing him. Begin taking what God has invested in you and try, seek to invest it in someone else. We all know people around us who don't know the Lord. We can begin by praying. And in our prayers, we can ask the Lord for an open door. And when that door opens, we can then say, have you ever thought about? And we become an ambassador. Six years, the mission church has existed. And our mission is to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Christ Jesus. That's who we are. So let's be that. Let's be that. If you are that, praise God. I just pray the power of the Spirit of God just to envelop you and just empower you to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And I look out and I see faces who I know are doing it, and I am so proud of you, and I am so pleased with your willingness to be an ambassador. But we all aren't there, and we all should be there if we are followers of Jesus. So I pray that you will consider this, and perhaps for you the next step is the next step table in the Mission Cafe where Pastor Brett is more than anxious to help you in any way that he can to become that ambassador for Christ. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.